0: Please read with me this evening, verses 9 and 10. Brethren, may we hear what the Spirit is saying to His church. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. May the Lord bless the reading of this precious word this evening. Now our last message and our message tonight are entitled Shamefacedness and Sobriety. This is part two. And it is because these two words taken together lay out the very heart of Paul's intent. According to Paul, women are to dress with self-respect and honor, neither luxuriously or sensually, and with command over their passions and desires. Now in the last message I, I borrowed heavily, Uh, from other sources in an attempt to be uh, careful, objective, and as fair as I can be. I am no uh, master of the Greek language, but I have attempted to garner those who are, uh, and I have uh, tried not to be just selective to those who would uh, hold my own position. I have attempted to be as, uh, as fair with this as I can be. And I want to make you aware that there are differing views of the way this verse should be interpreted. uh, interpreted. Now, I begin this review with another quote from Thomas Oden that I think is appropriate for our day. Now, I I quoted him at the beginning of our last message, and I made reference to his uh, unease about this passage. And I thought it good tonight, since this has become a two-part message, to go ahead and give you what he has to say about it, that it might search our own hearts. Brethren, I think in the very words that uh, Mr. Oden gives to us, we will see one of the, the primary uh, motivations in the hearts of those who want to overlook this passage. Listen carefully to what he says. I think it's amazing that he put this in his commentary. He says, speaking of the passage we have read and uh, the verses to the end of the chapter, he says, This is a passage I have always disliked, resisted, and until now avoided at all costs. I think that's a remarkable admission uh, when we're talking about the Word of God. But uh, there is a, a real honesty in it. I wish many of the men that refuse to preach on this subject would admit as such. He says, To be confronted with the task of preaching or teaching on it is not easy. Amen. One is tempted to evade the task by making a few vague generalizations. But insofar as I have allowed myself to be examined anew by the text, I have slowly come to realize that Paul requires my closest attention in grasping his deeper meaning and intention. However I may resist it, it comes to me as the Word of God, asking me, and I would say commanding Him, asking me to listen and pray for guidance. So even against my reservation, the text has gradually invaded my consciousness and made its mark. Now, brethren, that is a remarkable admission to put in print. That would be one thing to hear it on a, uh, in a telephone conversation or have it written to you in a personal letter. But to publish it in a book, at least to me, uh, speaks of Something of a remarkable candor. But I want us to recognize what he's saying. I don't want to preach this. (laughs) I don't want to deal with this. This is hard. Now, why is it hard? It's God's Word like the rest of God's Word. Brethren, it's hard because we have a generation that has cast off It's patriarchy. We have several generations which have lost the concept of leadership in the home. And unfortunately, far too often, the women and the children make the policies and guide the house, instead of men guiding the homes as they ought. I can assure you that there are men who don't want to deal with this. I can assure you that there are men that don't want to preach on this because they don't want to have to go home and hear their wives complain. There are those that don't want to hear their daughters saying, but everybody else gets to wear this. They don't want to deal with it. But He, he makes to me the confession in this that, that I could only pray that all those that would hear these tapes, or would ever deal with this issue, uh, would make, and that is this. He said, "As I have allowed myself to be examined anew by the text." You hear those words, examined by the text, brother and I sat in the in the living room of a family once who was mocking me regarding this issue. The the wife and the daughter were anyway. And uh, the husband just sat there as most quiet with his tail between his legs. And as they were sitting and laughing, I simply looked at the matriarch and I said, Well, let me ask you, as you're making quite an issue of this particular subject, have you ever sat down and taken the Word of God and studied it regarding the issue of what you, as a professing child of God, should wear? She said, no. Brethren, I have seen this over and over again. Right here, our author has the honesty to say, I stood before the text and said, Search me. Brethren, stand before the text. Sisters, stand before the text. Do the homework. And be searched out by the Word of God. He then goes on to say, As I quoted a moment ago, That he came slowly to realize that Paul, and again I would correct it here and say the Holy Spirit, requires my closest attention in grasping his deeper meaning. He says, I began to realize I'm being drawn in. As I stand before the text and I put away my fears and my doubtings and my dislike, see, he's in academia. Someone talking about this kind of thing in academia would be laughed at, as a, either as a, a backwoods hick or a, a Pharisee or something like that. But he puts all of this down and he says, and as I stood before the text, it began to grow in my thinking more and more that I was being drawn in to understand what it's saying. And finally, against my reservations, the text invaded my consciousness made its mark. But this is what the Word of God does. This is how the Holy Spirit deals with His people. Stop arguing. Stop coming up with all of the excuses. Quiet the flesh and bow before God's Word and say, what are you saying to me? And then grant me the grace to walk in it. So, let's review then, having considered these remarks, let's review William Mounce's three keys for interpreting this verse. He says that the words shamefacedness and sobriety, or as he translates them, modesty and moderation, both carry sexual connotations. Again, this is a very important statement Because he's saying the very words themselves carry these connotations. There are men today, pastors, who will say, this passage is only talking about rich clothing. It's not talking about sensuality. The words themselves put the error to that thinking. Paul shifts from speaking about actual clothing to emphasizing the true priority of good deeds. Exactly right. And then number three, that was number two, I'm sorry, number three, then to adorn and and the word uh, attire uh, or apparel have a dual meaning, clothing and a person's general deportment. Clothing and a person's general appointment. In other words, exterior or externals and internals together. In other words, Paul's primary concern moves beyond appearances to behavior. This is not simply about how much cloth there is. His point is that women are to dress in a way that is in keeping with their Christian character and to concentrate on what is most important. While their dress is an issue, Paul's greater concern is is their hearts. He's not divorcing them from each other, as we talked about last week, many tend to do today. Well, God's not worried about externals at all. Not true. All God's worried about is the internals. Not true. They go together. And we must not separate them. So, We spent a good deal of time, in fact, the whole week, uh, excuse me, the whole message last week, uh, dealing with the idea of external and internal. I will simply give you a quick review of that. We considered how important it was that we realize the connection between externals and internals. Clothing is external. Modesty begins as an internal, which ultimately manifests itself in something external. In other words, if our heart is speaking, our appearance should speak a language that's in harmony with it. This is is exactly Paul's point here, and we want to understand it clearly from the text. The very words point to this. Now, we looked at uh, most of the words in this verse last week. We're not going to do that in review this week. Uh, we're simply going to uh, look again uh, at the word apparel. Uh, uh, the, the Greek word is kathastole and it's uh, used of deportment, our inner carriage of ourselves, if I can say it that way. Ah, uh, uh, uh both outward, as expressed in clothing, and inward. Probably, Paul is talking about both. That's the whole idea, is that this word is used in two different ways. It can simply mean your apparel, but it can also mean your attitude. And most of the uh, commentators, uh, for whom I have some uh, measure of uh, confidence, or in whom I have some measure of confidence, all generally think that Paul is not using one or the other, but is using a word so that his readers would understand both issues there. The outside and the inside. Shamefacedness means, is, a, is, a, is a moral feeling of reverence, awe, respect for the feeling or opinions of others or for one's own conscience. And so, shame, self-respect... Or a sense of honor. And uh, we quoted George W. Knight III as saying it. This word means that which shrinks from overpassing the limits of womanly reserve and modesty. As well as from the dishonor which justly attach thereto. And the word sobriety signifies a command over bodily passions. A state of self-mastery in the area of the appetite. The basic meaning of the word has different nuances and connotations and represents that habitual habitual inner self government with its constant reign on all the passions and desires which would hinder the temptation to immodesty from arising from arising in effect Paul is saying that when such attitudes self-consciously control a woman's mind, the result is evident in her modest apparel. Her clothes speak that she is in control of herself. Now that brings us then to consider the issue of sensuality and ostentation. sensuality, and ostentation. <clears throat> now, as I said, it has become popular in the last few, here, uh, in the last few years to hear some uh, uh, proclaim that Paul is not referring to sensual clothing in this passage. And they make the case that all he's talking about is garish, luxurious, opulent dress. That we're not to come in dressed to the nines, so to speak. That we're not to to come in just dressed up showy and showing off our money. Now, this isn't a complete fabrication. There is no doubt that the issue of ostentatious, showy, glitzy, luxurious clothing is included in this. As I said in our very first study, the word modesty doesn't simply apply to sensual clothing. It applies to ostentatious clothing as well in this particular context. And there's no doubt that he's talking about that. Uh, But my reply to the thinking that this is all that Paul is referring to is that the choice of words, shamefacedness and sobriety, include both meanings. And that is one of the reasons I've read you these extensive definitions. The Greek language itself, without having to read anything into it, speaks this way. It speaks of sensuality as well as ostentation. Um, Tom Schreiner uh, for whom I have a great deal of respect as a writer uh, and an exegete says in the book uh, Women in the Church this to describe the kind of adornment to be avoided the author employs a disparaging caricature of wealthy women the traditional concern was that such external adornment had seductive Powers. This is the side that's being left off. You see, he's saying, yes, they're coming dressed up very showy. But for what purpose? Not simply to say, I have money. It's also saying, this is seductive. Look at me. The phrase... With shamefacedness and sobriety, thus expresses the discretion and decorum befitting a Christian woman, which stands in contrast to the to the seductiveness and wealthy display of the worldly woman. Now you see, he says very plainly, both here are involved. John Calvin. Says this, he intended to embrace the opportunity of correcting a vice to which women are almost always prone, and which perhaps at Ephesus, being a city of vast wealth and extensive merchandise, especially abounded. That vice is excessive eagerness and desire to be richly dressed. He wishes, therefore, that their dress should be regulated by modesty and sobriety. For luxury and immoderate expense arise from a desire to make a display, either for the sake of pride, but now listen, or of departure from chastity. Once again, the issue of sensuality is there in the picture. He says there's two reasons to come dressed up this way. To show off, look at my money, Show off the body. I'm seductive. I'm beautiful. Look at me. Another commentator says, This includes the avoidance of clothing and adornment, which might be both showy and extravagant, as well as sexually enticing. Thomas Oden says, Paul appears to assume that women share responsibility with men for eliciting or resisting sexual advances or fantasies. He urged removal from worship of whatever draws the eye away from God. Brethren, do you hear? This is the man that said, I didn't want to deal with this passage. And now he's saying, as I stood and exposed myself to the text, here's what what Paul is getting at. Did women share responsibility with men for eliciting or resisting sexual advances. In other words, the blame is not all on women, as is often the the way it is made to sound. That is not the case. As I made clear in our early studies, the problem ultimately lies in the hearts and the eyes of men. As uh, I believe I have shared this with you before, but again, in this context, I think it fitting, I sat uh, in the living room of, of a dear friend of mine who. Um, w- whose wife disagrees with me on this subject. Uh, he would like to, but uh, he's not been able to work that out under his roof yet. As many men struggle for this very issue. And I was trying to explain to this sister the issue at hand in trying to explain why and how clothing that is inappropriate in worship is distracting it is distracting for men. They're having difficulty worshiping because women are there in short skirts or very tight clothing or in pants. And after I was talking to her, oh, I suppose about 15 minutes, and I could see something kind of boiling up inside. You know, when you're talking to people, sometimes you can see them just kind of working toward that spew. <laughs> And by the time I got finished, she looked at me and she said, Well, all you're telling me is that men have a problem. And I said, Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And I'm telling you that you can contribute to it. And of all places, when we come together to worship, you should not. She said, well, I just think that's their problem. They need to deal with it. You see, sisters, this is an attitude that says my comfort and what I want and my taste comes first. Rather than the biblical concept of loving our brethren and attempting not to cause them to stumble. Now, those are... Those are words that in certain circles are fighting words. I understand that the issue of offense and stumble takes a a great deal of time nowadays to unfold and unravel and to define. But the simple fact of the matter is this. When a woman, when women are properly dressed, men are responsible on their own for their eyes and what's going on in their hearts. But when they expose themselves, in a way that is inappropriate and in, and in, immodest they are as richard baxter said in the sin with them and mr oden is telling us <clears throat> that that's just exactly what paul is getting at here calvin goes on to say undoubtedly the dress of a virtuous and godly woman must differ from that of a strumpet that is a harlot what he, meaning Paul, has laid down are marks of distinction. And if piety must be testified by works, this profession also ought to be visible in chaste and becoming dress. Linsky, the commentator, says this, Speaking of the word sobriety, it is often translated self-control and is then usually referred to sexual passions in our passage, despite Acts 26.25. Because these two words are here referred to women, they should not be unduly restricted to sex. Vanity, pride, and other improprieties are here also excluded. Extravagant dress is generally worn for mere display with the secret desire to produce envy. I find it interesting that he begins the opposite of many others. Others start off with the idea of luxurious dress and then admit that sensuality may be involved. He begins by saying it's sensuality and that the others may be involved. Kelly says in his work, the pastoral epistles. He says, while his, this is Paul's, remarks conform broadly to the conventional diatribe against female extravagance, showy, ostentatious, what is probably foremost in his mind is the impropriety of women exploiting their physical charms on such occasions, and also the emotional disturbance they are liable to cause their male fellow worshippers. This is brought about, or excuse me, this is brought out by shamefacedness and sobriety. Now, once again, here is an exegete saying the very words point this out. We don't have to read something into this. This is taken together, this is what they're saying. This is brought out, he says, by shamefacedness and sobriety, which in the original are represented. By the nouns, and I will not give them to you again in Greek, the latter stands for perfect self-mastery in the physical appetites. As applied to women, it too had a definitely, a definitely sexual nuance. Gordon Fee, in his commentary on the pastorals, says, There is a large body of evidence, both Hellenistic and Jewish, which equated Dressing up, in quotation marks, on the part of women with both sexual wantonness and wifely insubordination. Indeed, for a married woman, so to dress in public was tantamount to marital unfaithfulness. In those days, the whole idea was that uh, the, the woman was to show her fidelity to her husband, in her demeanor and in the way she dressed. And to be showing herself off was actually a synonymous. Uh, it spoke the language of infidelity. Look at me. Instead of me being simply for the eyes of my husband, I'm showing myself off for everyone else. Husbands, you need To help your wives understand these things, it is likely they were never taught them. In our day, we have been taught by Hollywood and the public schools what is normal when it comes to dress. Sit down and have some good, frank discussions with your wives. and encourage them. Because, brethren, what are we talking about? It's not a matter of two or three or four or ten inches of cloth. That isn't ultimately the issue. It isn't Paul's issue. He's saying we are children of God. We have been saved from darkness and wickedness and from ostentation and from sensuality. We've been saved from sinful self and brought into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. His precious and holy blood has washed us clean and delivered us from the present evil world so that we might walk as those who are truly His children, walking in a holiness, in a purity, in a chastity that speaks that we have been delivered from the worldly way of thinking. Now, just to settle this issue a bit further, there are those, believe it or not, after I've been in discussions with them and presented them with this kind of evidence, that will still say, nah, I just think that, well, you know, it's... It's talking about showy dress, ostentatious dress, and you can't show from the Bible. What you're doing is you're going outside of the Bible into history and and looking at what people wore at that time, and you're trying to drag that back in to your understanding of the Scriptures. And if you'd stop all that, you'd see it's just talking about ostentation. The Scriptures don't say that the showy stuff has anything to do with seduction. That's not true. Turn to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great that sitteth upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. If you will look carefully at her dress, it is the kind of thing that Paul is forbidding in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. The whole idea is dressing up. Surely it's showing off money and wealth, but it is also showing off seductively. The mother The mother of harlots dresses this way. When women become proud and ostentatious and sensual and seductive in their dress, God brings judgment. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, the Lord said... "...because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their cowls and their round tires like the moon, the chains and the bracelets and the mufflers and the bonnets and the ornaments of the legs and the headbands and the tablets and the earrings, the rings and the nose jewels, the changeable suits of apparel and the mantles and the wimples and the crisping pins, the glasses and the fine linen and the hoods and the veils. And it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there shall be a stink. And instead of a girdle, a rent. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth and burning instead of beauty. Brethren, if you read the first three chapters of Isaiah carefully, you see God bringing judgment upon Jerusalem and upon Israel because of their wickedness. And this is one of the things that He spends details upon. He gives 21 articles of their haughtiness and their mincing steps. The idea of stretched forth necks here is argued among the commentators, but it appears most likely that it it is to be understood as meaning that the women glance coyly to see whether their elegance is noticed or not. Are you looking at me? You see me? Wanton eyes means casting voluptuous and seductive glances with a pretended innocence. Batting of the eyes. That's exactly what's here. Cowls are the headbands. When it says round tires, that sounds unusual to us, but these are ornaments shaped like crescents. They were pendants that were fastened around the neck and hung down upon the breast. The mufflers are fluttering veils. These were generally more expensive than the ordinary veil worn by girls. And we could go through each and every one of these aspects. Are we saying here that, that then for women to be spiritual, they should just walk around in sackcloth? Is that what's being said by these things? Well, of course not. Because God is not simply judging the clothing. He comes to them because they are haughty. And because they are haughty, they adorn themselves for the purpose of, look at me. Look at my money. Look at my pride. Look at my charms. At that point, whatever you're wearing is for the wrong reason. In 1 Timothy 2, when Paul says, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with a, a holy... Deportment with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, he isn't saying that for a woman to ever put a braid in her hair that somehow she is sinning against the Lord. He is talking about specific items that were used in this ostentatious display. As we have said, <clears throat> there is the 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 gold and the pearls and the costly array. You see the terminology. So turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. We have similar language. Similar language, but if we look at the words carefully, we can understand, I think, what both of these apostles are driving at. <clears throat> In verse two of chapter three, first Peter it says, While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of planting the hair and of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel. Now stop and think for just a minute. Let not your adorning be putting on your clothes. Now quite obviously he's not saying you'll be more spiritual if you don't wear clothes. Everybody with me on that? (laughs) Because this is what he says clearly the putting on of apparel. Is there something wrong with putting your clothes on? Well, of course not. We're arguing that you ought to be covered. So what's he saying? This is not your beauty. That's what he's saying. This is not your beauty. Your beauty is not in your ornamentation. Sisters, your beauty is in your devotion to Christ, in your faithfulness to Him and to His Word, to walk as the daughters of Sarah, to walk as the precious daughters of the King. What should your clothing be? This is what Paul finally settles on in verse 10. But that which becometh a woman professing godliness with good works. You see, he's not saying that just particular items are in some way wicked. What he's saying is that these things that speak of pride, money sensuality. That this is evil. That this is wrong. And it especially has no place in the worship of the Most High God. I mean, you can make yourself as drab as you want to be, sisters, and come in and be proud of your drabness. Now the thing is here, many men will go that far in saying that much, But then they throw out, then, any kind of standard, then, for dress. Ah, because he's pointing to certain things. No, don't miss the principle. Quite obviously, the point cannot be missed. That outward beauty and obviously, obviously conspicuous adornment for the purpose of, see, I'm See how nicely I'm dressed? This is the wrong attitude. So, there is, as we have already seen uh, in our previous studies, standard for, uh, for dress. It is not necessarily given in this verse, but we see from the examples throughout the scripture that the body ought to be covered from the neck to below the knee. And, if it is uh, loose, fitting, flowing, then it is likely well within the realm of that which can be worn into the services and the worship of the Most High God without causing any distraction or any seduction. tight clothing pants these kinds of things simply cannot live up to that standard now let's consider our last point worship and daily life there are those who would want to argue well okay he's talking about church here so now, when we come to church, if we dress this way, then it doesn't really matter what we wear the other six days of the week, right? Wrong. Now, that's, that's, that's not right. And the reason for that is quite obviously we come into the, the presence of the Lord to be instructed of Him to take what we learn here out of the building. Now, there are those who would say, well, it's, he's not talking about in the worship services here. Let's go back to some of our exegetes and just hear what they have to say. <clears throat> William Hendrickson says in his New Testament commentary, the, wor, the words similarly, word similarly show that Paul is continuing his remarks about conduct in the connection with public worship just as the men must make the necessary preparations so that with prepared hearts and without previous disposition to evil, they come to church. Able to lift up holy hands, so also the women must give evidence of the same spirit of holiness and must show this while they are still at home getting ready to attend the service. <laughs> he says it ought, to be, it ought to be in their thinking before they ever leave the house that they're going in a spirit of modesty. Not going to show off my money. Not going to show off myself. I. Howard Marshall says, It is thus probable that behavior that poses a hindrance to prayer is in mind in each case. Arguments and dissension on the one hand, ostentatious or seductive dress on the other. It is entirely conceivable that with disruption in the assembly for worship as the motivation for the instruction, inappropriate adornment was seen as a disruptive influence in the case of women, just as arguments were in the case of the men. Hendrickson also says, vain display on the part of women was and is offensive to what is best in Oriental taste. He's speaking about the East... Today we say Oriental and simply think of Japan or China. He says, but what is more important, it also offends the Creator. In a woman who possesses or professes to be a believer, such pursuit of the cult of beauty and personal adornment is doubly unbecoming. It offends the Creator and the Redeemer. Though always wrong, it is most reprehensible in a woman who is getting ready to attend church. For showy clothes, ill-befit, broken, and contrite hearts. The kind of hearts which God welcomes at the service of the Word and sacraments. And it should go from here, as I said, out into daily life. Several other commentators agree with this. It says, while the immediate context remains that of public worship, the shift to good deeds suggests that Paul sees the teaching as having ramifications in other contexts. Good deeds cannot be relegated only to the context of worship. That's William Mounts. Lenski again says, the fact that if women dress heart and body for church as here described, they will dress in no contrary way at any other time does not need to be said. Unfortunately, I'm afraid it does need to be said in our generation. He's taking something for granted that I think probably no longer applies. <clears throat> it is probable that these regulations, here doubtless intended for the worship service, originally referred to the behavior of women in general. For the argument given in uh, verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 13 and following, refers to the place of women in creation, not to her behavior during the service. Also, the injunctions which immediately follow refer to the behavior of women in life in general. Now, brother, I realize sitting and listening to a, a, a stream of quotations can sometimes be tedious, but the purpose is simply to say this: I have striven and uh, and prayed and sought with all of my heart to set before you, as objectively I can as I can, the case. That embedded in the words that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to use. Of the very notion that women, especially in including but not excluding outside the church, including the worship but not excluding outside the church, that women should dress modestly. They should cover their bodies, as should men. That's already been said, but I will repeat that. As should men. And that when we come together here, this is where our distinctions as men and women and the natural roles which God has put us in should be more clearly magnified than any other time. The goddess of comfort, I'm afraid, is the one before whom many bow today, rather than the Word of God in Scripture. Well, all that matters is just if I'm comfortable. Brethren, the 60s did more to us (laughs) as a culture than virtually any other uh, in immediate memory for breaking down every concept of male and female distinctions in dress and in destroying virtually every concept of modesty in dress. And all that really mattered was like, hey, am I comfortable? That's all that matters. No, that isn't all that matters for God's children. For God's children, these are His bodies which He has purchased with His own blood. They are His He has bought us spirit and soul. And if we are born of God, then our desire should be, as Mr. Oden has said, to stand before the text and have it examine me. And then once it makes its mark and has its impact, to joyfully bow before my God. Does what you wear make you a Christian? No. what you wear is speaking and it's speaking very loudly. Does it speak that we are children of a king? A king of purity? A king of holiness? It doesn't mean that uh, we need to buy the fanciest clothes we can. Not at all. That's not what we're here for. It means to dress with sanity, good taste, modesty, and that we will not bow to the goddess of comfort as such. I'm not asking everyone to be uncomfortable. I'm just saying that's not the primary thing you dress for. Be as comfortable as you can be. I like to be comfortable. But if it comes down to my comfort or the glory of God, then it must be the glory of God. Because He loved us and gave Himself for us. Because the Father gave His only begotten Son that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Oh, sisters, I encourage you to think about these things with all of my heart. Listen to the words of Thomas Brooks as we close. He said, Clothe yourselves with the silk of piety with the satin of sanctity and with the purple of modesty. And God Himself will be a suitor to you. Let not the ornaments upon your backs speak out the vanity of your hearts. Amen.